All right, all right. Hey, Rockbridge, I hope everybody is uh, just doing fantastic, and I just want to welcome you to our services wherever you're uh, here from in one of our six locations or online connections. You're watching on your computers or however you're here. We're glad you're here. Believe that you're not here by accident. You know, we're one church, multiple locations, multiple languages, and uh, we're excited. We're excited that you're here. Was it not awesome the last week to have the first Easter in two years kind of unaffected by the C word coronavirus, right? Was that not awesome? And just so, so awesome. Praise God for that. And we're glad to be moving forward. But we kicked off a series last week called Live No Lies, and we just sort of introduced this concept that, hey, we can actually believe a truth but live a lie. So we talked about, hey, you can believe the truth of Easter, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but then you can go out and live as if he's still dead, live as if the tomb is still sealed, and and live a lie. And we do that in a lot of areas, but we're starting this series and getting getting in rhythm with it. And I just want to kind of talk off the cuff for just a minute, kind of pastorally. I firmly believe as as we pray with our pastors, our discipleship team about our series, about what we need to talk about, and I really believe this series is timely and it's relevant and it's needed. You know, I spend, you know, a couple of of hours each week responding to emails, and and the theme of spiritual warfare is prevalent, and and the theme of folks who are kind of caught up in a lie or being distracted, being deceived is prevalent. We live in an information age that's also become a disinformation age. And you felt this, you're like, man, I don't know what to believe anymore. You felt this in the terms, in the, in the sense of chaoticness and uncertainty that's prevalent in our world. And, and, I, and I really believe we have some hope and we have some truth and we have some things to offer. Now, I, I will say this, this, this tonight and this weekend, this, this message series or this message will be a little bit different because I'm not going to end with as clear of an application as I would like to. So I want to just invite you to make a commitment that you will come back for part three and part four and beyond of this series because what we're talking about overcoming maybe lies that have crept into our soul or our mindset, uh, overcoming deceptions and distractions. What we're talking about is not something that's going to get better in one sermon, in one service, in one prayer. We're going to have to work because in some cases, we're going to have to unlearn something that's become part of how we actually live. And you can't break habits and start new habits in a a 65-minute service. So we're going to really have to work at this. I just want to invite you to come back. But what I want you to pray even now, and I'll lead us in this prayer in just a moment, is that you walk out of here today for part two just with an awareness and a commitment. We'll need God's help for the awareness. We'll need God's help for the commitment. But if you would just open yourself up and pray with me in just a minute, I got just make me aware of some things that maybe I need to address, I need to deal with, and then God, give me a commitment, a resolve to cooperate with you, your Holy Spirit, your grace, because God does not want anybody enslaved by a lie when he's come to set us free by the truth of who he is and what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, I just come on behalf of every soul that's gathered right now in six locations, in two languages, 
messages. I come right now, God, on behalf of anybody that's just watching on their computer. Uh, maybe they're traveling. Maybe they're sick. Whatever, God, that just everybody that's engaged right now, Lord, we need your sovereign and gracious help so that we can leave out of here with an awareness that I firmly believe by your word you want us to have and that we would make it a commitment to cooperate with you, God. That we would make a commitment to cooperate with you. And God, I firmly believe for most folks, that's going to mean they make a commitment to be back here next weekend and to process, God, what we talk about during the course of the week, whether that's with their spouse, their kids, their small group, their D group, or their own reflections, God. So Holy Spirit, we're inviting you to start to continue an incredible work that began 2,000 years ago when Jesus erupted from the grave. May it continue in our hearts and minds this, this weekend at Rockbridge Community Church. In your name we pray, amen and amen. So we introduced this concept that, hey, you can actually believe a truth but live a lie, and, and we marry it with something we find in Scripture that's quite remarkable, that there are over 40 warnings in the New Testament alone about deception, that God does not want his people deceived. You know, in our kind of American mindset, we would say, hey, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is, and we might cite a health diagnosis, we might cite a natural disaster, we might cite some threat to our livelihood, not our lives, but our livelihood, you know, uh, our standard of living. God would disagree with all that. God would say to all of us that, hey, the most, the most dangerous thing for any of us is a deception that we live by or that we base our identity or our happiness or our futures upon. And it's in that dynamic that we find Jesus talking to a group of people in John chapter 8 <clears throat> that were not really convinced of who he was, who he is, what he came to do. And, and Jesus says some remarkable things that begins to shed light on this concept of, of, of deception. And here's what he says as we start reading the gospel of John chapter 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples, and the disciples are student. I'm going to learn how to live my life. I'm going to learn how to live my life from Jesus, my teacher, my Savior, my King. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Very popular. This verse is actually on the doors to my high school when you go into it. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And, and he's, there's a parallel here that Jesus' word is truth, and that when we hold, believe, and live out his truth, we become free, which is God's will for us. We become free, and that's, that's how God wants us to live, and that's how God wants us to operate. So Jesus asserts this, and then he kind of pulls back the, the curtain uh, of the problem, or he pulls back the curtain of the, uh, of the enemy, and he pulls back the curtain of what it means or how we get ensnared in lies. Here's what he says. We skip on down to verse 43. He says, why don't you understand what I say? He goes back to what he said about his word, because you cannot listen to my word. And he says, you're actually kind of related. You're, you, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. 
He unpacks it even more. He says, he, the devil, was a murderer, a destroyer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So he's contrasting truth, lie, truth, and freedom, his word, which is truth, versus the opposite. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and a father of lies. Then he brings it back to himself and he says, yet I tell the truth and you don't believe me. If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen because you are not from God. And so he portrays kind of our dynamic and the challenge that we have. And, and if you're, you're sort of like me, it's kind of easy to think of, oh, the devil, that's just sort of a myth. Or that's like the movie, The Exorcist, which freaked me out as a kid, by the way. So, you, you, or, you know, some kind of vile image or something like that. And, and we're going to kind of try to make that make sense and, and unpack that. But here's what we need to recognize. The guy who rose from the dead, Jesus, Believe that the devil is real, he's intelligent, and he's actively working. That the devil is real, he's intelligent, and he's at work in the world at large, and he's at work in you or against you. He's certainly not for you. And, and, and so th that's how Jesus portrays him, and he believed in him. And then, and then we would say this, the goal of the devil is disorder, and death and destruction. The goal that Satan has is the disorder and, it's, and death and destruction. He's against everything of God. He's against what it means to be a human being. He's against what it means for us to be made in the image of God and exist to bring God's glory. He's ultimately against our happiness, though he appeals to our desire for happiness. But that's his, that's his MO, that's what he does. And then the tactic of the devil is lies. The tactic of the devil is lies. I read this right before I came out to share this, and it kind of broke me and burdened me at the same time. So hear what I'm going to say. Again, I'm going to speak more uh, just level pastoral right now. There's not a soul alive that is in some form or fashion not dealing with one of Satan's lies. Hear me, hear me say that. There's not a soul alive, including me, you know, the professional Christian up here with a microphone, there's not a soul alive that is not in some form or fashion dealing with one of the devil's lies. Now, you may not say, you may say, I don't know about the devil, but, you know, because we sometimes think, what well, we're above that because we're in the information age. Man, we've got all this information. None of us are falling for lies. We're not doing that. And it sort of starts to seem like far-fetched, right? In fact, we sort of innately believe we're smarter than the people that lived 50 or 100 years ago, right? It's kind of called chronological snobbery, right? That, now, here's the thing. We have more information than they did, but that doesn't mean we're any wiser, and that doesn't mean we're any less susceptible to Satan's lies. In fact, we got more options. In fact, I was reading this story the other day, and this just happened a few years ago. There, was a, there were two protests that emerged in Houston, a protest and a counter-protest. And all these people came out of this protest, and they believed why they were there. Do you know who started the protest? Russian propagandists, same group of people, posted two Facebook posts that went viral in the Houston area and caused two protests and counter-protests. Disinformation. Lies. 
that prompts a response and a reaction. So the tactic of the devil that attacks us is lies, and it would be dangerous for us to think, because we start thinking, no, man, that's like saying the, earth, the world is flat or Elvis is alive and we should go to Memphis. It's not that kind of, it's not those kind of lies. In, in fact, the apostle Paul presents it this way, and here's what he says in Colossians 2. He's talking about Jesus, he says, so that they may have all the riches, this is what he wants for the church, of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And notice how he's going to portray Christ in, in a really different light. You know, we think of Christ maybe in Christmas, and we think of Christ in Easter. We maybe think of Christ in his miracles and calming of the storm, walking on water. Listen to how Paul says this. In him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, truth, truth rightly applied, which would be wisdom and knowledge. And here's why Paul is teaching this. He goes, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. That's key. I am saying this. I am showing you Christ as a treasure of truth or wisdom and knowledge. So that, you know, so that you won't be deceived with something that sounds reasonable. And, and we can think through so many deceptions and we can think so, through so many things that, that are out there. I, I was thinking, think about what emerged in the 1960s with the sexual revolution, right? Where we take sex out of how it had been defined for thousands of years as something protected and cherished inside of marriage between a male and a female, right? And now we've just assumed that, that, hey, sex is free, sex is anyone, it's my body, I can do what I want with it, if it feels good, do it, yada, 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 and on down the line. And no one has stopped to ask or listen, are we any better off because of that supposed truth that emerged? I mean, it sounded reasonable, right? And many of us, you know, we could say our sin stories, and many of us, our sin stories are sexual, right? or our sin struggles, and some of you may, I, no, I, it does feel good, so we do it, right? But if you look at it, and you look at research, and you look and you say, hey, are we any better off? Violence against women at an all-time high. Rape on the most liberal, progressive campuses and universities in this country. Prevalent. One in four women will experience sexual violence. Divorce, which was, you know, supposed to be this revolt against, you know, patriarchal society, is more, way more damaging to women than to men. And we just, and we look at fatherless, and you just go on and on and on and on and on and on. You know, the, the people that, are, that are promote like pro-choice, we don't talk about the impact to the social, emotional health that abortions have to women and on and on and on. And that's just one example that is accepted that, hey, you just do what you want to do. You do you and you be you. And we don't talk about are we actually flourishing or are we actually being destroyed? What's his goal? Chaos, death, and destruction. And then Jesus comes along, and part of his mission statement, if you will, is that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Don't take my word for it. Take the Bibles, right? The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. 
And, and, and he does that through four mechanisms. And we'll unpack this, but let's kind of identify them. First is he destroys the devil's work by his blood shed on the cross. That what looked like a satanic triumph because Satan entered Judas and caused Judas to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, it looked like evil had won, Satan had won, the powers of the world had won. But here's what was actually going on when Jesus was hanging there on the cross. It says, he canceled the record of charges against us, our sin debt, our guilt, our shame, canceled and took it away because they were nailed to the cross. So now one of Satan's big tactics is to condemn and to accuse. That's been nullified and neutered. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Because one of the great enemies of our soul is unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin and Jesus has canceled that when we put our faith and we trust and our trust in him. Secondly, Jesus destroys the devil's work by giving us life from his spirit. That he not only forgives us of the penalty of sin, he gives us his spirit to give us power over sin. 1 John 4, 4 says it this way, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who's in you, Holy Spirit, is greater than the one who is in the world. And so by his spirit, we start destroying, defeating the works of Satan. Jesus destroys the devil's work by truth from his word. He's already told us, my word is truth and the truth sets us free. So Jesus destroys Satan's work by truth from his word. And, and we look at this and we put it all together and we start to recognize who we are before Christ or who you are right now without Christ. And listen to how Titus portrays what happens when we come to Christ. He says, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, and here's our word, deceived, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But something happened. But... God invaded, God intervened. When the, kindness and love of, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done because we were enslaved, we were deceived, we were disordered. But according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified, that's a legal term, our sin was canceled, our debt was paid, we're forgiven, justified by his grace, we might become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And so all of that's going on to liberate us, to free us, and to set us up to live the way God originally designed for us to live and died for to set us free to live that way forever. But there's a fourth way, and this probably gets overlooked. There's a fourth way that Jesus destroys the work of the devil. He destroys the work of the devil by his church that is growing up in him. Now, again, what has Satan discouraged? He's discouraged community. He's disparaged the church. There's, there's hundreds of so, thousands, millions of so-called Christians who would say, I don't need the church. God would disagree. 
Notice how Paul is going to describe the work of the church in, the, in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I want everybody to reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. There's truth, treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Him. Growing into a maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So the church, as it grows, not talking about numbers, not talking about quantity, we're talking about quality, the church looks more like Christ. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. So the church works together to protect one another from deception. But speaking, how does it do this? Speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. For from him, the whole body, fitted in it together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So what he's saying is one of God's ways to protect us from deception is to put us in a group of people, in a community of people under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We speak the truth in love to one another. We each do our part, serving, working, worshiping, communing, praying, being there for one another in small group, in D group, in churches, in membership, in commitment to one another. And we protect one another from these schemes of the devil. We help each other recognize what is the voice of God and what is the voice of Satan. So do not believe the lie that church doesn't matter. Do not believe the lie that it's optional to be in community. Do not believe the lie that this stuff doesn't matter. Because as we turn 20 years old this year, and I've told you, you know, I'm like super, super reflective and nostalgic and all those kind of things. But we're honestly rethinking biblically what does it mean to be a member of the church? What does it mean to be a part of the family of God? Are we building ourselves up in love? Are we speaking the truth in love? Are we protecting one another from our greatest danger, which is what? Deception. From who? The father of lies. Now, if we add all those four things up, here's what we see, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, the gospel is the greatest defense of Satan. The gospel gives you an identity of who you are. The gospel enables you and I to experience the joy, the peace, and the hope of Jesus. Our sin keeps us from God's joy, hope, and peace. The gospel overcomes our sin so that now we can come to God, joy, hope, and peace, right? The gospel creates the church. The gospel gives you brothers and sisters, not by your flesh and blood, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of his spirit. So the gospel does all these things to protect us against Satan. Now let's take that. And let's make that into a positive statement. Where the gospel has strengthened you, Satan cannot attack you. Satan will attack you with who you are, who you think you should be. But if you know who you are in Christ, you're not vulnerable to that deception, to that deception, right? Sin will seek to isolate you. The gospel seeks to connect you to other brothers and sisters who are moving in the same direction as you are. So on and on it goes. When we are understand the gospel, Satan can't attack us. That's why I keep telling ourselves, you never, ever graduate from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You never get beyond it. It can never become good news but old news. Yes, it's good news. Yes, it's old news. But it's always the news I need to hear most. 
who Jesus is, what he's done, who I am because of what he's done, what I'm a part of because of what he's done. We, we said it last week, right, that one of the great deceptions is hope and who or what you put your hope in. Where does Satan want you to put your hope? In that apple right in front of you, right? Where does God want you to put your hope? In the kingdom to come. So on and on it goes that where the gospel strengthens us, Satan can attack us. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to back up. And we're going to walk through one of the most famous deceptions and temptations that, that, that I know of. And it's right there in the beginning of the Bible. And we're just going to sort of do a diagnosis and like a diagnostic test. It's kind of like your doctor asking you a bunch of questions to see how you're doing, see if things are good, see if things are not good. And hopefully, prayerfully, remember I said awareness and commitment, that we want to get an awareness of how or where Satan and lies and deception fit into our psyche and fit into our soul and are doing war with us and then make a commitment to combat that deception with truth that we have available to us in Jesus and his gospel. So we begin in where it all began, right? Where it all went wrong in Genesis chapter three. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? So we're going to attack truth. Remember Jesus said, my words are truth. If you hold my words, you're my disciple, you're my student. So let's attack the authority, the credibility of the truth giver. Did he really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. You will not die, no consequence, no worry, right? You'll be like God. And here's how it happens. Here's how, here's how we get enslaved or ensnared, okay? Notice that how what Satan does is he just presents an idea. He just shares an idea emerges. Think, think like just a conversation or a thought pattern. Just think about thoughts that come through your head. And, and some of those thoughts are crazy or outlandish. Some of them are sort of true. Some of them are like kind of true. But just think about that. that an, he just presents an idea. Nothing weird, nothing like crazy or cool. He's just like, hey, did God really say that you won't die? Well, why don't you reconsider? And he just puts an idea. And, and notice this. Notice this about the idea. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. The idea seems practical. Who doesn't want good food? Who doesn't want a little pleasure? And if you can have some good food or a little pleasure and, and, and you get something good out of it and nobody's going to get hurt or nobody's going to find out or it's not going to really be as bad as maybe your mom said or the preacher said, then why not? So it seems reasonable. Remember what Paul said, it sounds reasonable. It doesn't look bad. It doesn't, no, no, God, God was just exaggerating, okay? So, so it just, it's all right there. Now, don't miss yourself in this story because, you know, we're like, oh, a serpent, oh, an apple or, oh, a piece of fruit. Ah, oh, yeah, that'll never happen to me. Oh, really? I mean, that's really all our stories. Some of our stories even now. So what does she do? So she takes some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Here's the question. What was he doing? 
nothing. And he ate it too. That's a failure of community. Because, see, we all know now that marriage portrays the church. Paul makes that connection here to, to Ephesians 5. So community failed. Remember why God puts us in a church? One of the reasons we're in community is for that protection to help us recognize deception and combat it. What happened to community? What happened to Adam? What did he do? Nothing. Did he speak the truth in love to his wife? No, he didn't. What did he do? Nothing. Okay. Right? I mean, we all blame Eve, but he was with her, and he ate it too. Okay? So it's a failure of community. So notice, notice how Satan works. You, we have the ability to think, to ponder, to consider, to contemplate. We have the capacity to think, take things into consideration. It's part of our choices. It's part of our freedom as made in the image of God that we can think. We can dwell on things. We can weigh options. We can, we're not just driven by survival instincts. We have higher capacities because, again, we're made in the image of God, right? So the idea that is presented plays on our desires. Who do, we have a desire for beauty. We have a desire for significance. All of those are God-given desires. We, ha we have a desire for purpose. All of those are God-given desires. They just get twisted and disordered by deception, right? And then the ideas seem to have an energy or a force to them. Have you ever thought about something or been drawn to something, and it's like, man, I can't get my mind off of it. And it almost has like a gravitational pull, right? It's like when I put like a sandwich on the counter, my hound dog's going to eat it if I leave him alone. It's like he just can't help himself. It's like when we get in the right moment and the right idea and we take it into consideration instead of into captivity, we're drawn into that. We're enticed into that. But here's the, here's the big thing we have to recognize, and this is the lie that operates behind any, 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 lie, any deception or any idea. Here's the lie, okay? God is not as good or as wise as he claims to be. Listen, I'll raise my hand to this. I'm not going to ask you to, but there's probably not anybody listening to me that hasn't at some point or another in your journey questioned, is God really as good? Is God, does God really know what he's doing? And, and you've had the audacity, me too, to think. You wouldn't say this in church or small group because people would look at you funny, but, but let's just be, keep it real because we are in church, right? You've had the audacity. I've had, if I were God, I would. What did he say to her? You'll be like God. See how it starts to come? When we start, if I, I don't really see anything wrong with that. See how it happens? And then the bottom line is God's holding out upon us. What God has ordained keeps us from ultimate happiness. What God has ordained keeps us from flourishing, keeps us from fullness. And so here's, where, here's the next logical step. Therefore... If we assert our autonomy and our freedom from God, we just went through the sexual revolution of the 60s, this liberate ourselves from how God has defined sex and marriage. 
and we follow the voice in our heads and the inclination of our hearts, then we'll really be better off. And the question is, are we? Will we be? And don't judge it by a Friday night. Don't judge it by a season. But will we be? And, and to just boil that down, we believe a lie about what will make us happy. Now, let, let me be, let me be kind of, let me just kind of lighten it a little bit and let's just kind of be, let's do something basic, all right? So we're, in, we're, just, we're just put ourselves in our cars, right? We're on our way to work, okay? There's a traffic accident, okay? And, 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 and you are, know you're gonna be late for work, all right? You know you're gonna be late for work. And your mind starts activating. And you're like, man, who was doing that? Was somebody, was somebody doing stupid, something stupid? And man, I'm going to be late for work. I'm going to get in trouble with the boss. And you get, start getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And you get more frustrated and you get more frustrated. And, and because you're like, man, if I don't get to work on time, the boss is going to get upset. I'm going to have a bad day and I'm going to feel like a failure. Now, do you hear the lie? Failure. Futility frustration. And then, you know, so, you know, maybe you're a Christian, you get to where, oh man, Satan's really attacking me. Why? Because of the accident? No, because of the idea that you are what you do and you are defined by your job. See that? You're a mom. Same situation. You got to get your kid to practice. You got to get your kid to the ball game, whatever it is. Accident, you're going to be late. Oh my gosh. <laughs> If I don't get my son to practice, he's not going to make the team. He's not going to get to start. And if he doesn't have a good little league experience, he's just going to grow up and be a dysfunctional adult, and I'm going to be the worst mom ever. <laughs> Do you see the lie? Do you see the lie, right? And, and, and let's, let's say, let's put some Christianese on it. You get there, man, oh, Satan's attacking me. There was this accident. It's not the accident. It's the idea. It's the idea. See, Warfare, spiritual warfare, when we talk about it, listen, it's not so much about what happens to us, but rather our interpretation of it. And our interpretation is often a deception about who I am, what my purpose is, who God is. God, why did you let this happen today? Right? Now, now just back up. Let's back up on the way to work, on the way to practice, accident, we're going to be late. Take a deep breath. Say a prayer. God, I hope no one's hurt. That's what's most important right now. Let me pray for the police, pray for the first responders. God, I, I, I've been listening to you through my time with you, and I know you're trying to teach me patience and that I'm not always in control. God, this is an opportunity for me to practice Christ-likeness because you want me to be like your son, Jesus. And when I'm most like your son, Jesus, I'm most fully alive. I'm free and I'm full of joy. Same thing happened. It's interpretation based on deception. I remember when my wife, we found out she had leukemia. Obviously devastating, tough news, something her brother had died from. 
And we had several people say, man, I just don't understand why God would let something like that happen to you. Like, like we're above that or something. Or I, you know, it's kind of the good, bad things shouldn't happen to good people. I'm a sinner. I'm not a good person. I need the blood of Jesus just like you. But Beth quickly arrested all that kind of stuff because she made this statement. She said, hey, listen, we're going to ask God for a miracle, but the greatest miracle is our salvation. I'm not going to question God's goodness because I got leukemia. What's the difference? Interpretation. Is it based on deception or is it based on truth? And so what goes wrong in our brains, in the garden, what goes wrong is this. Until Jesus comes back, the ideas that are based on, built on deception, they're not going away. Okay? It's not going away. It'll get worse before he returns. Okay? The problem comes whether we're in the car on the way to the little league practice or in the car on the way to work or in the room with the doctor when the doctor says or we're in the garden. The problem says is the idea often goes uncontested by gospel truth. We don't contest the idea, whether it's Adam who was with her and did nothing or Eve who just, why does she talk to him that long? Why doesn't she say, eh, uh-uh, that's off limits. God said so, and God's not holding out goodness. God is the epitome of goodness. It's just uncontested. The, the mom in the car, I'm just going to be a terrible mother. Contest that. Being late to practice doesn't make you a contest, doesn't make you a bad mom. The, the guy in the car, and he's going to be late for work, right? And I am what I do, and if I fail at work, I'm a failure. Contest that. You are who Jesus says you are, not who you're, what your job says you are. So the, it's uncontested. And so here's, here's the deal. I asked you to pray for this, awareness and commitment. That you become, I become, we become more aware of how the enemy and how deception works on us. That we just become aware. And I just want to ask you a couple of diagnostic, diagnostic questions to fuel this. We'll make a commitment in prayer. Where am I vulnerable? Where am I vulnerable? Now, now you can be vulnerable because of past trauma and pain that's unresolved. And you have not processed that trauma under the light of the, and the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. You, you can be vulnerable because you don't know Scripture enough. And, and so when there is an idea, you can't contest it with gospel truth. And when we talk about time with God and spending time in God's Word, ah, I don't have time for that. I don't think you have time not to have time for that. You can be vulnerable because you're not in biblical community. You, you don't have anybody in your life that will speak the truth in love to you, that will ask you, hey, where are you vulnerable to Satan? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? Where are you, where are you being tempted? Where are you being threatened? So you're vulnerable if those are... Th- so, so where am I vulnerable? Let's, let's go on a little further. Am I currently considering or believing a lie? A lie about your past, a lie about your body, a lie about what it means to be a human being? A lie, where, 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 where am I currently considering or believing? Because I'm just going to tell you, listen to me, do not think 
that because you had a good day at work and your health is good and your bank account is good and the pandemic's in the rearview mirror and you've got, you know, you got a vacation plan for this summer when the kids get out of school, do not think there is not a satanic deception working on you as I'm speaking to you right now. That would just be ignorant presumption. And then let's take another step. What gospel truth do I most need to believe and cherish and then live out? And listen, this is why I say we've got to come back because some of you are like, man, I don't really know what that means. Awesome. Come back. Write it down. Think about it. Talk about it. What gospel truth do I most need to believe, cherish, and live out? And then let's, let's just end with this. When I am not cherishing gospel truth, one or all of these things are true. When I am not cherishing gospel truth, I am considering sin. I am reaping regret, present or future, or both. I am grieving God. I am walking in fear and anxiety. I am being enslaved. Whenever I am walking in insecurity, insecurity, fear, or anxiety, it is automatic. I know I am not cherishing a truth of God's that he's given me. All right, so when I'm not cherishing gospel truth, I am considering a sin, reaping regret, grieving God, walking in fear and anxiety, or I am currently being enslaved by something. But let's flip it. When I cherish gospel truth, I am blessed and I am protected. So would you, with that awareness, two things, awareness and commitment, with this awareness, would you just make a commitment to say something like this, and I'll pray it over us, but we're going to make a commitment, something like this together. We want to come back next week, but we want to pray this during the week and begin thinking, God, I want to make a commitment to walk more in your freedom, which, needs I, which means I've got to integrate some truth born of the gospel of Jesus Christ into my life and my marriage or my money or my sexuality or my practices or my habits or my work. You, do, you, you think through you. You lay it over all that. Just make that commitment. And then we're going to work that out together. We're going to work it out together on our weekend services, throughout our small groups, and as we're praying for all of us to know the truth because the truth of Jesus Christ sets us free to his glory and for our goodness. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for truth this weekend. Lord, I know we get blinded. I know we get deceived. I know we can walk in presumption and ignorance. And so in Jesus' name, I just want to pray against all those things. And then, God, on behalf of these people that are here by no accident, I just want to ask you to bring divine awareness. God, where you make us aware, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, you speak to people. God, maybe someone here is not even a believer, but they are realizing, God, I am just living a lie or I've been deceived. God, that, let them recognize that is your grace working on them and wooing them and drawing them to you. God, let believers recognize that we are never beyond the ideas built around these deceptions of Satan. 
And God, I pray just for awareness in my life, in the lives of everyone listening, God, where we're vulnerable, where we're being deceived, where that lie is right in front of us and enticing us and trying to draw us in to then enslave us. And then, holy God, you are glorified when your people, when people make commitments to move in your direction. Would you find in heart after heart, soul after soul, a commitment to cooperate with the truth that is given and revealed and proven in Jesus Christ and his gospel? And God, I pray this over everyone, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. We would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. And we pray this in the name above all names, the one who he himself is a treasure of wisdom and knowledge, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.